Welcome in. It is Sunday night, October 17th, the year of our Lord, 2021. Lake Kick is live. We are jam-packed. We have survived our trip to Knoxville, Tennessee. Not without significant danger, but nevertheless, we are here. Sort of a correspondent role that I'm playing for you tonight. High atop downtown Nashville, Tennessee, in our still sparkling and still new-smelling studio. Uh, Ed Orgeron going to be out at LSU. Told you this was coming. It has now come. He's going to finish the season. A press conference is underway even as we speak at LSU. We've got to get this show big enough to where the powers that be at these various institutions schedule their press avails around our show. We don't want any more than just the world revolving around us. It's really all we've ever asked for around here. Dan Mullen, if anyone in Florida thinks that the um, stuff that happened at Tennessee last night or any of the other upsets yesterday are going to take away from us talking about Dan Mullen and what in the world Florida's doing tonight. They're wrong because we will discuss that. Uh, Lane Kiffin, probably, I think safe to say, the, one of the most polarizing figures in college football, really sort of like a Vince McMahon creation. And we witnessed that last night. Got a lot of in-depth storytelling to do for you for our trip to Tennessee. We've got full rapid reaction to all of week seven, and it was obviously a noteworthy week. We've got an added best bet for tonight. I've got so much to get to. I don't know how long this show is going to be, but I know the voice is back. And so settle in. Uh, we're going to go on quite a ride through, through many, different, many different stops along the college football trail that was week seven yesterday. Now, if you were following yesterday, it probably not a better day in the season so far to have been following me on Instagram and Twitter at Late Kick Josh than Saturday, October 16th. Because there were some things that we saw and there were some things that I witnessed last night that I recorded that I can't be putting on the show uh, that I'm not really supposed to put out there. Excuse me, let me whisper. I'm not supposed to put it out there, period. But I did. You just need to know where to look at Late Kick Josh. Uh, that stuff has been archived on Instagram. It is one of those story highlights. So if you want to see in all its glory what we witnessed last night, I'm going to show you some of it coming up. But if you want to witness all of it and a documentation of all the road trips we've taken at Lake Kick Josh, that's the place to get. Okay, I cannot, um, I mean, I can't spend 15 minutes filibustering to get in the show as I've been one to do in the past because we've got so much to get to. So let's dive in here. The wait is over at LSU. It was announced today. Well, it's being announced as we speak. It was reported today. Ross Dellinger with Sports Illustrated was the first on it that LSU and Ed Orgeron have reached a separation agreement. He will complete 2021. Again, this is according to the Dellinger report. He'll complete 2021. Uh, he will not return in 2022. That's the important part. So Ed Orgeron, uh, the formality is not just a formality now. It's done. He's gone. He will not be the head coach at LSU. Full buyout expected to be delivered. And for those unfamiliar, it's a pretty significant buyout. This caught me mildly by surprise. Uh, depending on what you've listened to over the past few days, maybe you felt the same way. Uh, the national reaction has been as expected. This is why I've tried to keep you as dialed in as we can. There have been some folks pretty close to this that we've been in touch with. And so we've, we've had some good information on this. I've tried to keep you as dialed in. And the reason I've tried to keep you dialed in is for this part right here. Because if you noticed when this news started to break today, if you looked around the country, a lot of the national types and a lot of casual fans that aren't close to or on the ground in the SEC or around LSU, they had similar reactions. Shame on LSU. Man, that's just the wild west of the SEC, less than two years removed from winning a national title and you're letting him go. That's not it. That's not it at all. Did you notice, by the way, for anyone who thinks this was 
a knee-jerk reaction, or for anyone who thinks that it was bad timing because the decision was made after a win, Guys, did you look around and see how many stories were posted from 14 different media outlets within an hour of this news breaking? Do you know what that means? It means they were already written, firstly. Secondly, a little behind the scenes here, we have a Google Doc. It is the most archaic way to ever put together a rundown. If you don't believe me, ask some folks in Stanford, Connecticut or Fort Lauderdale, Florida, but it's the way I do it. And so um, we have had a lower third that I have highlighted in red and it has been the lower third that essentially you see on the bottom of your screen right now, if you're watching on YouTube, we've had it ready for like, what, two and a half weeks, Colin, three weeks? I've just had it in the file and I've had it marked in red and I said, don't use this until I tell you to. Everyone behind the scenes knew this was coming. It wasn't a knee jerk. In fact, it was decided long ago. So I wanna look at a follow-up tweet because Ross Dellinger, who broke this story for SI, he put out his main tweet today and he broke it on Twitter, but I wanna look at the follow-up tweet he had. I'm showing you on the screen right now. I'm gonna read it for you if you're listening on podcast. So Orgeron, this is what the public sees. This is what the casuals see. Orgeron's 49 and 17 at LSU, but only nine and eight since the championship. However, this goes beyond on-field results. Listen to the next part, please. A strained relationship between coach and administration, to say the least, rooted in team management and public and private behavior. Only a tippy-tippy tip of the iceberg has ever and probably will ever be made public. That has warped into an untenable situation, distrust and outbursts. As we have told you for a couple of weeks now, as bad as you get the kind of sensation that it is down there, it was infinitely worse. Uh, to put a finer point on it, folks hated it there. Players telling people, including myself directly, they hated it there. They had zero respect for the head coach. There was no relationship there. Uh, it was very, it was very uh, volatile, uh, to say the very, very, very least, at the ex kind of absence of a much better word. It's been that way for a while. So uh, everyone knew that was coming, but I want to rewind one month because this is done now. It's been done for a little while, but it's done now. And I think they timed it up well. And I think doing it after a win signifies what we said a couple of weeks ago was true. Going into the Kentucky game, remember when I told you Orgeron's going to be fired and I don't care what happens Saturday. It's because this was already happening. A lot of us had already heard that. It, it was happening. And so he was done regardless. He could have, I don't know if he could have won every game and been fired, but he wasn't going to. So he could have won against Kentucky. He did win yesterday. It doesn't matter. And I'm going to talk about that game more in just a little while. But I want to rewind one month because it was on a Sunday night when I first sort of threw this little tidbit out there. And I said, I had an agent buddy of mine who told me about the USC job. Don't think you're about to get any kind of quick solutions or answers on the USC job. And I said, why? I was interested. And he said, well, everyone thinks the LSU job is going to come open. And in my world and the agent world and the coaching world, a vast majority of people believe the LSU job is a way better job than USC. I agree with that but it was just kind of validation to know that they felt the same way. Well, now it's real. We fast forward a month or so, now it's real. Now we've arrived at the very situation that he sort of, he sort of alluded to happening. It's funny how people in that world can see around the corner uh, well ahead of time, but it's real and here's what I want you to remember. I want you to remember LSU is not one of the best college football jobs in America. LSU is one of the best football jobs, period, in America. And so I know a lot of hot lists are going to be formed out there, and I know there are going to be a lot of leaderboards, and this is the favorite, and I'm hearing that guy's the favorite. Well, first off, be patient. 
on this stuff. I'm not going to give you a list of candidates tonight because there's not a whole lot of skill in it because I'm not making the decision. Would I be interested in how James Franklin would do there? Of course I would. I'd love to see what Mel Tucker would do there. They're like two dozen guys. I'd love to see get a shot there. I don't have a say in this decision. They have not texted me or called me about this yet, but 95% of the information being put out right now is from agents. So as good as they are on the front end to get some information, on the back end, it's pure self-preservation mode. It's pure be able to go to my current guy's boss and say, hey, we talked to LSU, give him a raise mode. That's what's happening right now. So just pump the brakes a little bit on all the information and speculation. This is not gonna be an overnight deal, uh, but it will unfold over time. But I do wanna say this, this is viewed as one of the best football jobs in America, meaning don't just cast your gaze over college football. Don't be surprised if you start to hear some NFL names involved in this as well. I'm not um, speculating specifically about that. That's been something general that I've been told, but you've got the salary structure, of course, in place there for head coach and assistants. You've got access to talent. You've got full administrative buy-in, and you've got a heck of an administrative model, top to bottom, led by one of the most premier athletic directors in the country. This is why I told you the decision was going to be so easy. The program's not a train wreck. The head coach was. The program's still on the tracks. The program's ready to go. You just need a new guy driving it. Uh, but you've got fan passion. You've got top to bottom investment. You've got all the stuff that you need to win and win at a high level. Those are the pros. The cons aren't really cons. There are some folks out there who would tell you, well, you've got to compete in the SEC. Yeah, that's not a con to a competitor. Well, you've got to go up against Saban. That's not a con to a competitor either. They welcome that. So by default, the guy who is right for the LSU job will not view the alleged cons that you see with the LSU job as cons at all. You got to compete? Great. I wake up at 4.55 every morning to do it. I got to go and get saving the best of all time? Great. I wake up at 4.55 every morning to do it. I've lived my whole life. I've climbed every rung of the ladder in hopes that I would get that opportunity. Competitors, again, by default, the 0.01% who are qualified to be the head coach at LSU, they're not turned off by the stuff that some of you may be turned off by. This is going to be fun to watch. Um, Glad the move has already been made, at least officially. So um, excited to hear what was said at this press conference tonight. I'll probably talk more about this Tuesday. So there I am yesterday in Knoxville. And I had several of you talk to me about Academy Sports because you knew I had those gift cards in my pocket. That was a successful venture yesterday. Going to need more gift cards. So I'll be talking to Academy this week about that. But what has started to happen is you guys have gone away from just sending me pictures of receipts please keep doing that. You have been doing that and tag me in them when you post them. But now I'm getting pictures of product and it's product on site. So a lot of you, I had um, someone, I think it was at a Utah state or a Utah tailgate yesterday, showing me pictures of like a whole family's worth of Academy chairs. And then I was in Knoxville. So I saw that entire tailgating scene and it was beautiful. And there was so much Academy. And my question is not to those of you who have already purchased, but to the two or three of you out there who have not yet, I don't know what you're waiting on because I see the gear you're rolling with. It could be so much better. It could be just come across the bridge. Just come join us and help the show in the process. Academy Sports and Outdoors, of course, the official outdoor sporting goods supplier of the Big 12 and the SEC and of Late Kick. And here's the most important part you need to know. We genuinely like them. They are our friends. That's why we allow them on the show. These, this right here, by the way, the B-roll of the turkeys over there, the Hokies, it always catches me off guard. If you're listening on podcasts, forget the last 10 minutes of what I said or 10 seconds of what I said. So Academy Sports and Outdoors, uh, there are some more things that we are partnering with them on down the road. 
But just this initial kind of segue into our partnership, it's been really fun and been really rewarding. And it's nice that when I walk through those areas that I often have to to get into a stadium, that's what I'm told. It's shake hands, nice to meet you. Oh, by the way, by the way, look at what I have over here. And it's something from Academy. So that's been fun. Thank you so much to Academy. And thank you to you for already making that partnership a success. And if you can't get to a store, Academy.com. 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 Speaking of being in Knoxville last night, let's talk about the Ole Miss-Tennessee game. Ole Miss 31, Tennessee 26. Who in the world thought 31 was going to be enough? I would have made a significant side wager that someone was going to have 31 before halftime. I would have lost, but I would have made that bet. A lot of things are getting overshadowed today. So I want to very hmm, responsibly break this down. Uh, Lane Kiffin, first and foremost, let me hit the game. Lane Kiffin last night sort of embodied everything that you would expect to have seen in a bygone era on Monday Night Raw, let's say. You've got full heel persona. You've got all the, the bells and whistles of a character, not just a person, but a character that was created in one of Vince McMahon's laboratories up there in Stanford, Connecticut, as a matter of fact. Um, and boy, he played it. And boy, he loves it. He doesn't shy away from it. Lane Kiffin leans in to the heel persona. And so I'm standing there last night and I'm watching Matt Corral. You're watching him right now if you're watching on YouTube have the game of his life. And this was overshadowed. No one's talking about this today. This is one thing that's been overshadowed. Matt Corral goes for 231 through the air, 195 on the ground. I can't even begin to count how many third downs he bailed them out on with his legs, a couple of them with his arm, but with his legs. Ole Miss ended up running 101 offensive plays. Side note, Tennessee doesn't have a bye coming up this week. Tennessee's defense on the field, 101 plays, they got to go to Alabama this week. They still got to play Georgia too. So it's sledgehammer to the kneecap, sledgehammer to the shin, sledgehammer to the throat. That's life in the SEC. 101 to 79 total plays there. Yet Tennessee had a shot, several of them actually, in the second half. Because Tennessee's defense did a very good job. I think much better than people, I, to be honest with you, I thought both sides defensively performed a little bit higher level than really most people expected them to. Tennessee had several shots. There were multiple times, one possession game, Tennessee's got the ball, Tennessee has a chance to take the game. Since we were talking about pro wrestling, it's like the ladder match. And you're on the highest rung and you're reaching for the belt, but for, it's, maybe it's swinging from the rafters or maybe you know someone's grabbing your ankle, but you, you keep reaching and you, keep re you can't grab the belt. You can't grab the belt. Tennessee could not grab the belt last night. No matter how many times they lunged for it, they couldn't grab the belt. Then the fourth quarter, comes around. And the fourth quarter was one of the longest two months of my life last night. Um, it, let, me, let me take you through my train of thought, because everyone who watched this game remembers it in your own unique way. So there was a, I think we can all agree, a very suspect, a very sketch fourth down spotting of a ball. It wasn't even close to the first poor spot of the night, but it was a very bad spot. I thought it at the time, it was validated on replay. But it doesn't get overturned. And so Tennessee loses possession of the ball. And it looked like for all the world that meant they had lost the game. Now, it turns out about an hour later, we found out they still had a chance to win the game. But what followed was a really ugly scene. I'm not going to shy away from that. It was a very ugly scene. I'm going to talk about it. I was standing right down there in that end zone. So I was um, 
I was under fire just as much as anyone else was. But what I want to emphasize before we take a look at some of the B-roll I shot last night, yes, I had the iJosh with me, is it was not a spontaneous reaction. And I can tell you it's not. And I can tell you it wasn't because I felt it building all night. Now here's what I'm about to do. I'm going to probably caveat this two or three times over the next few minutes. Nothing I'm about to say is meant in any way whatsoever to excuse any of the horrific behavior from some, not all, not even most, but some last night. I think I've been clear enough. Not Portuguese, we're speaking pure English to you, not excusing any of it. But what I am telling you is it was not spontaneous. You could feel it building. And when they were in the middle of that replay last night, I'm talking to a couple of guys next to me. I've been in these positions enough to feel a crowd. You know, A, you know when they're going to rush the field. B, you know when you're about to have to turn around or else get pelted with debris. And I knew they were about to throw stuff. And I told someone, two guys next to me, watch what happens. You better turn around. I was telling them what protocol is. Turn your face to the crowd instead of what you think you should do if this call does not go Tennessee's way. It was a horrifically officiated game last night. Uh, you couldn't change anything at that point. But the culmination was when that call doesn't get overturned, here we go. Now, if you've never been in this situation, let me tell you what you don't do. What you don't do is turn your back and face the field and then just let your entire head be exposed. What you have to do, which I learned the hard way a couple of years ago, I'm not gonna mention which venue, you've gotta turn your body to the field and you gotta turn your face to the crowd. You gotta open your eyes really wide and you gotta look up. And you have to be like an entire little radar screen there. You gotta go left, right, left, right. That saved me. I counted three different times, maybe four, but at least three different times over the next several minutes as debris just rained down on the field from getting nailed. Having said that, knowing me like you do, you know I didn't leave the end zone. Instead, I pulled the eye josh out. Now, I couldn't get great footage uh, while it was happening because I didn't want to bust the lens. But after the initial couple of showers of debris had happened, I did pull out the eye josh. I think we have some of the footage actually. I did pull out the eye josh and I just kind of scanned the floor and yeah, it was a bad scene and yeah, they had stopped play and I think I, I ended up on the 50 yard line, by the way. Here's how crazy this was last night. This is during stoppage of play if you're watching on YouTube. I, with over a minute to go in the game, spent about 10 minutes on the midfield logo talking to players as the game still is going on. In no world is that supposed to happen, but yet you had to clear the sideline because uh, the cops came in. And when I say cops, I mean the entirety of every police force in the state of Tennessee comes in. So yeah, that was the scene. Okay, obviously there's no excusing this. Uh, this is very, very poor decision making. But the key folks is to always turn your face right towards where the action's coming from. Don't turn your back to it, kids. Do not turn your back to it. Now, before I talk about what the impetus was, aside from poor decision-making for that, I wanna show you the video I shot of Lane Kiffin exiting the field last night. When I tell you Lane Kiffin leans into the heel persona, what I mean is he leans into the heel persona. If they're gonna hate you, you can't change their mind. So Lane Kiffin's walking off the field and they have not flushed the student section first way that I knew something was about to go wrong. So Lane Kiffin is pointing to his heart, then pointing to the student section, number one, they're giving him one finger salutes too. And here it comes, bottle, boom, Lane Kiffin, Odell Beckham, one-handed catch, and then for good measure, heads down the tunnel, and what does he do with the visor? He tosses it into the crowd, and a couple of Tennessee fans fought over it. That's what kind of night it was. 
So one part, that's a little embarrassing. Another part, if you're just watching and judging it for what it is on the surface, it's kind of entertaining. But by and large, it was a bad night for the conference. But not just a bad night for the University of Tennessee. I want to stress, it was a bad night for the conference. So remember what I just said a second ago, because I need to reiterate it again now. Nothing I'm about to say, talking slow enough? Yes, nothing I'm about to say is meant to excuse any of that. But we need to talk about something that I really haven't spent a lot of time talking about on this show. The SEC has a major officiating problem. And here's the problem, it's not good enough. You have got a billion dollar operation going on. You've got the premier product in the sport and you've got a nickel and dime officiating kind of facet to it, a tentacle to it, that's inexcusable. And it's been this way for a while. Let me tell you why this didn't just crop up. Last night, I'm sitting in the press box, five hours before kickoff, and they're handing out the game cards, and you have the officiating crews always listed on the game cards. There were people who already were foretelling that evening's events when they saw the officiating crew that was assigned to the game. That's the same crew that horribly botched Memphis and Mississippi State a few weeks ago. And they put them on a powder keg of an environment, knowing full well what could happen. And then also you just have, you have shoddy products already from that group. And there they are. There they are. Like, what price do you pay? You suck at work, you get fired. They haven't paid a price. Uh, and if the price is behind the scenes, slap on the wrist, $20 fine, that's not a price. So there they are last night. And then you have questionable call after questionable call after questionable call. And what I'm saying is a bunch of Tennessee fans did something stupid last night. We can acknowledge that, but I also don't think it's excusing the behavior to acknowledge that without piss poor officiating, you never would have gotten to that point. And it's not the first time it's happened, and it will not be the last time it happens in the SEC. they got a big-time officiating problem down here. It's happening every single week. It's not just an SEC problem, but this is a conference that claims it wants to lead by action. It wants to lead the pack. So before anyone else does anything, how about the SEC take the lead and, again, acknowledge this is a billion-dollar brand. We should not have a nickel-and-dime officiating branch on an otherwise billion dollar tree. There's no reason for it. I've, I've asked around to people in positions of authority, right up to Greg Sankey, who will not give you an answer, but, but aside from Greg Sankey, I've asked people, no one ever gives you a good answer. They will always beat around the bush. It's like they fumble around in their pocket for an official league statement on it. It's not good enough. No one down here thinks it's good enough. No one's happy with it. No coaching staff's happy with it. No fan base is happy with it. None of them. This goes infinitely beyond the old, well, they remember the bad calls, but don't remember the good calls. It's not that. Like, there's common sense here. It's not that. It goes 10 miles beyond that. But what the shame of it all is, is how much got overshadowed last night. Matt Corral's night, Lane Kiffin's night for that matter. It gets overshadowed. A great game got overshadowed. But there's one more thing that got overshadowed. And that is the crippling amounts of fake injuries in that game last night that stretched it four and a half hours. If this would have been a noon game, do you realize it would have gone into the second quarter of the 3.30 kickoffs? Second quarter. They don't put up with that on Sundays. That's one of the uh, facets the NFL gets, right? They don't put up with those long games if overtime's not involved. What has happened here is a result of tempo-based offenses. That's obvious. And we used to sparingly see it. You know, you want to slow down the offense, you fake the injury. Well, nothing got done about it. Nothing. Because you looked around and you said, oh, it just happens here and there. Well, last night, there were over a dozen of them. And it wasn't, it wasn't shrouded in mystery 
it was blatantly obvious. There were guys looking to the sideline, they get the cue, they fall down, like they got sniped in the ankle. No one's even trying to hide it. No one's under the guise that anything else is going on other than injuries being faked. So what are we gonna do about it? Because I think before the ending of that game, Ole Miss's win was gonna be talked about and this was gonna be the next biggest talking point. Well, I'm not letting it go because it's a mockery of the game. It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing to watch that be passed off as a legitimate product. That's not legitimate. If I were to have never been a fan of football, you know, like, let me, let me, let me put it to you like this. I don't like soccer. I don't really care about soccer. I'm not going to say I don't like it. I don't really care about soccer. But when I watch it occasionally, I have questions about things. There are some rules I have questions about that don't make sense to me, but I don't ask them to change their game. They'll be fine without me. But imagine a soccer fan whose game that you don't think makes a whole lot of sense coming to your house last night and they're watching Ole Miss Tennessee. And imagine after you've made fun of soccer for flopping all these years, imagine they watch Ole Miss Tennessee last night and that's American college football. Like you, I've listened to you hate on my game. I've listened to you hate on football and this is football. This is what you're, that's not anything. That's, this guy doesn't even have a swollen ankle. This guy doesn't even have a cut on his wrist. He's laying down on the ground like he just, well, I'm not going to say it because of recent events, but you know what he's trying to pass off. Anyway, there has to be actual deterrent for this. You can't just tell coaches not to do it. I'm not even mad at Ole Miss or Tennessee. They're just doing what they know they can get away with. I'm not even hating on either program. I'm telling you that we've got such a backwards officiating apparatus in this sport right now to where... I can do everything my coach tells me to do, and because someone else holding a football lowers his body and I hit him in the helmet, I'm ejected for a half of a game or the rest of a game. And yet I can fall down and blatantly fake injury and I get everything I want. There is no risk to do it. I can just fall down. And in fact, some guys did it last night in almost a mocking fashion. Just fall down, lifeless, just fall down. Um, so what are you going to do about it? It's not up to me. It's up to you. Like you, you run the league. It's up to you. What are you going to do about it? Because if there's nothing punitive, if there's no deterrent, it's going to keep happening. What I would suggest is that you, if you're injured, if you're on the ground, you got to miss at least a quarter of football, the equivalent to a quarter of football, not just the series. You need to have to miss a quarter of football. If you can't come back in, then you can't come back in. So make them sit out a minimum of 15 minutes. And at that point, still, if a coaching staff views the risk-reward as making sense, if they want to sacrifice a guy a full 15 minutes, by all means, stop play. Go for it. <sighs> a lot of got overshadowed last night. It was a fun trip, too. Love Tennessee. Got treated great there. Love Tennessee. Love the folks there. Um, black eye caused by some. I'm not going to do what a lot of our brethren did in the national college football media last night and banish the entirety of the Tennessee fan base to Guantanamo detention while we await sentencing for them. Really don't think it was that big a deal. Comparatively speaking, there are bigger issues in the world, but yeah, it was a bad look for some. But I can tell you I had a different vantage point than pretty much everyone else. I was telling Director Colin, I'm on the field, I'm looking up. I can tell you what nine tenths of those fans were doing. They were looking around trying to find out who was throwing stuff. That's what the rest of them were doing. So don't let the few allow you to cast aspersions on the many, that's all I'm asking. Uh, let's move on. Oh, no, 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 no. We didn't forget. We did not forget at all. LSU ran for about half a mile yesterday en route to a 49 to 42 win over Florida. Maybe the most stunning outcome for me personally 
this season. I cannot tell you how confident I was in Florida running the score up on LSU yesterday. And instead we get this. So consider, just consider what you witnessed yesterday. Because this was a monumental upset in so many different ways. But yet then again, we saw it a year ago. We saw LSU gutted. We saw them as a double digit underdog and we saw them beat Florida. So we saw that already. But consider why yesterday was supposed to be different. First off, this is 2021. Dan Mullen told me it would be all well and good in 2021. Number two, you just had the Kentucky debacle two weeks ago where they beat you without even throwing for 100 yards and you slept walk through that one. Number three, you know what LSU did to you last year. And number four, LSU can't run the ball to save their lives until they line up with you. This is a stat that goes beyond padlock. I don't even know what planet this stat comes from. LSU woke up Saturday morning, okay? They were 127th in the country in total rushing. There are only like 130 teams out there. They were horrifically bad. They were historically bad. By a mile, the worst rushing product on the field in the history of LSU football. And Tyrion Davis Price yesterday goes for 287 just by himself. LSU overall over 300. Davis Price sets an LSU single game record. It's the most rushing yards Florida has ever given up in a game. They used to play against Herschel Walker. It's the most rushing yards they've ever given up in a game against, by a long shot, the worst power five rushing offense in America. This is called being unprepared to play a football game. It's not an X's and O's thing. It's just being holistically unprepared among the X's and O's problems. So I'm going to tell you what I thought about it. When I was watching, I was in the Tennessee press box and I was watching this game yesterday. I had a little wrestling buddy growing up. By wrestling buddy, I don't mean a kid in my sixth grade gym class. I mean the stuffed wrestling buddy. You know, the one your parents buy you so that you can wrestle with it and you always win or you're supposed to win. But see, you get tired of beating the wrestling buddy because it's an inanimate object. It's just a little stuffed doll. So you have to fight for yourself and then you also have to fight for the wrestling buddy. So you let the wrestling buddy punch you and then you take its leg and you let it kick you. That's basically Florida yesterday. Florida looked at LSU, a wrestling buddy. It should have been a lifeless body that you ran over and backed up and ran over again as many times as you wanted to. And instead, it's like Florida's taking LSU's leg and they're kicking themselves in the face with it. And then they take, they take LSU's hand and then they, they backhand themselves with it. And at the end of the day, you had track marks all over you. And here's how bad it was. You want to know how bad a day it was for Florida yesterday? Here's how bad a day it was. Florida lost to a coach that got fired anyway. That's how bad the day was for Florida yesterday. Woof, woof, woof. Speaking of dog sounds, they still got to play Georgia in a couple of weeks. So if you want to start forecasting how ugly that one's going to be now, don't let me get in your way. Here was my fear at the beginning of the year that I'm afraid is being validated right now. My fear, going back to last year, those of you who watched the program for a little while know, my fear was Dan Mullen was sold on going to the NFL. It turns out the NFL wasn't quite as sold on Dan Mullen, but we had reason enough to know that Dan Mullen badly wanted a shot at the NFL. It was my belief then, and it still is now, that in the middle to latter portion of last year, Mullen had convinced himself he was going to get an NFL job. Therefore, that was his last season in Gainesville. His actions last year sort of correlated with that theory. 
He acted in a very loose manner. He acted kind of in the way that you would if uh, it was, you know, March of your senior high school year. You can act in a way because you're headed out the door that you couldn't act a year ago. But then he didn't get the NFL job. Okay, worse things have happened. But my question as it pertains to 2021 and beyond was, is he just going to be able to check back in? And he hasn't been able to. Regardless of whether my theory is right or wrong, he hasn't been able to. This team has not been able to check back in. They've had a stretch of some really, really bad football starting last year and extending into this year. And here's the problem. The problem is, you remember that bowl game, if you want to call it a game, against Oklahoma where you know, Florida kind of got treated like a wrestling buddy. But Dan Mullen told you, well, the last game for this team was, you know, against Alabama. This is next year's team. You know, we checked out. And it was pathetic, but at least in terms of 2021, you were willing to hold your nose and maybe accept a little bit of that and say, okay, for devil's advocate purposes, maybe Dan's right, and maybe 2021 will be good. And then they almost beat Bama. And so for a little while, it puts lipstick on the pig. But man, that lipstick wore off really quick. In fact, one week later in Lexington, Kentucky. And he just pushed the debt down the road is all he did. They got some fundamental problems there that were not solved. And it didn't get solved with a couple of defensive assistants moving on and new guys being brought in. I cannot for the life of me figure out the quarterback dynamic. I'm starting to think that Florida fans have been as right about Anthony Richardson as Oklahoma fans were about Spencer Rattler. Uh, maybe you guys do know your roster better than your head coach. I never say stuff like that because it, it can't be true, can it? But then again, you don't know what's going on behind the scenes. That's, I'm not at practice. That's why I've never been one to just openly question personnel decisions. But man, when we get game film on guys, when we watch Anthony Richardson come in and we watch the product on the field, it's kind of like when Caleb Williams eventually came in for Oklahoma. You can't deny it anymore except the head coach of Florida is still kind of trying to deny it with the way he's operated. How does Anthony Richardson not start against Georgia? I'm going to leave that. we got a couple of weeks to talk about that. But um, I got asked, so obviously I get asked last night, after Florida has lost, is it time to move on from Dan Mullen? Every time a team loses, the fan base asks you, is it time to fire fill in the blank? So is it time to move on from Dan Mullen? No, I'm not there. You know it's got to go to step 10, 11, and maybe even 12 before I ever advocate for anyone being fired. Only because I know how hard it is to replace coaches with other quality coaches. Having said that, fundamental changes have got to be made there. And I got a couple of them, but I think in a perfect world, you make both of these changes. You've got to make a change at defensive coordinator. Like there's no question about this. You've got to make that change and you've got to bring in a world-class defensive coordinator. Now here's what I would hope. I would hope he's a world-class recruiter, too, and spare no expense to do it. John Hammond, Jurassic Park, we spare no, we spare no expense. You've got to fix the recruiting apparatus there, too. I don't know how many more games, I know the Florida fans know this, but kind of speaking to the choir here, how many more games do we have to see where Florida does not have the adequate caliber of athlete to bail them out of subpar performance before we know we got a recruiting issue down there? Again, Florida fans know this. Like, they'd finish the sentence for you if they were sitting in here right now. But if it's not addressed, if defensive coordinator and the recruiting apparatus there's not addressed, then you've got what you've got with Dan Mullen. You're four years in now, but really you've watched his career. You've got what you've got. You've got a good coach that every few years could pop an unexpected result on you. It's not going to win you a championship because you cannot out-scheme people in the playoff when you 
don't compare with them athletically, but maybe he'll win the SEC East in Georgia's down years. The problem is, all due respect, if this were the University of Missouri, that'd be great. This is Florida. It's not good enough. It can't be accepted as good enough. The fans don't accept it. So this is more directed at people who are actually in decision-making positions down there. But wow, I mean, I'm, I'm just telling you, it's, it's got a sting when you get beat and it's thought so little of that they just fire the coach anyway. I know there were other circumstances involving that, but it's just on the surface, it doesn't feel good. All right, more takeaways here. Let's take a little sippy sip of water. Thank you for being tuned in live, if you are, by the way. We have got, um, I did not put, I did not put the restrictor plate on the chat tonight. So anybody and everybody can participate in the chat, but I would just humbly ask that you subscribe to the channel. We're about to hit 70,000. They said it couldn't be done. And here we are, a little over a year after we launched it, making it happen. Uh, so that's all we ask, it's free. I'm not gonna blow up your inbox or anything, just uh, subscribe to the channel. Several other games to react to from yesterday. Well, there goes Iowa. How about that? I'm not going to do the I told you so thing like a lot of you thought I was going to, judging by my inbox. It's just that this is why the power rating world is different than the rankings world. Because Iowa was never the second best team in the country, although it was perfectly fine to rank them number two. But yesterday, you saw what happens. You want a padlock stat? Here's the beginning and the ending of it. Minus three turnovers. So Iowa rode a wave of turnover magic and special teams magic, all the while they were totally inferior offensively. This is not telling Iowa fans anything they don't know. Uh, the misconception was that formula was duplicable throughout a whole season. And it's not. It, it never will be. It never was. It didn't even need to be that extreme yesterday, guys. They didn't get beat 24-23. They got beat 24-7. So minus three turnovers. I would suggest to you, even if it was just even in turnovers, they were going to have a dogfight on their hands. That is Iowa. When you're that bad offensively, if you don't get the turnover breaks, even Purdue is going to push you to the very limit, or in this case, beat you by double digits. So now where is Iowa? So now that we've come off this notion held by some that they were going to be a playoff contender, which they never were going to be, now we can get real about them. Because I can tell you they probably won't drop in the JP poll because we had them properly rated. But they've still got to go to Wisconsin. They've still got Minnesota, whomst, by the way, controls their own destiny in the Big Ten. Florida of Rosedale is going to be great this year. And you know that's my favorite trophy game. Florida of Rosedale, favorite trophy game. They've also got to go to Nebraska. They'll be dogs in two, if not all three of those games. So just keep an eye on Iowa. It is a long season. Try and tell you guys, the month of October feels like it's about six weeks long. The month of November feels like it's about 13 weeks long, if you're in contention. It, you, it takes so much gas to get to this point, but so many teams have about half a tank to three quarters of a tank of gas, and they cannot make it through this stretch. And that's what I was finding out right now. Michigan State made it yesterday, though. Michigan State 20, Indiana 15. Now, I have mixed emotions about this. As you know, I was on Indiana plus four and a half. Naturally, they uh, lose by five. But the game played out exactly how we thought it would. Michigan State shouldn't win this game. Here's why it's significant. They did win the game. They pulled on Iowa out of their back pocket, as a matter of fact. We got the exact kind of game. The model got the exact kind of game we expected. Uh, Michigan State got outplayed. Listen to this. Indiana had 10 more first downs. They had 81 more yards, 26 more plays run. Michigan State sloppy, 12 penalties, 134 yards. But Michigan State had 13 defensive points 
in a 20-point effort. And that's all it took because they played good enough defense. And so this is a game that the box score suggests and the post-game win percentage suggests you should not have won, but you won it. you got to win one or two of these. If you don't have superstar athletes, you've got to win something where you play a C-plus game. And it's got to involve this kind of stuff. And so Michigan State got it done. Well, now they removed the last obstacle out of the way that was standing between them and hosting Michigan undefeated. Now, Michigan's got to play Northwestern this week. Crazier things have happened. Michigan should handle Northwestern. And if they do, we've got undefeated Michigan at undefeated Michigan State October 30th. I don't know if you're watching, but if you are, I licked my lips twice. It's not just because the air is dry in here by a humidifier. It's not just because the air is drying here. It's because I may be up there. Uh, let's see. Auburn. Bo Nix. Should we clap? They tell me not to do it in the microphone, but 38 to 23. Auburn went to Arkansas. They got to win. Arkansas's beat to death. They have no legs under them. Having said that, Auburn hadn't had a bye either. And they played some tough games too. So I thought this was an equal matchup. Auburn ended up winning the thing 38-23. I think they scored late. Very impressive drive to do so. Auburn and Brian Harson. It's one of the quietest, most under-the-radar stories in America right now. There's something happening at Auburn. It's not going to culminate in some great playoff run this year, but they are a two-loss team right now. I would have to look at um, our latest power rankings, which I haven't looked at. They may be our highest-rated two-loss team, maybe, but they're improving. Anytime I do a radio hit and the, the host asks about a year one coach, what are we looking for this year? That's it. It's so basic. Improvement. Incremental, week-over-week -week improvement. This is a better team than the one that went up to Penn State and lost about a month ago. They're better. And now they're battle-tested, too. They've already gone to Penn State, to LSU, to Arkansas. They played Georgia. Now they got a bye week. And they get shot out of a cannon into their bye week. Bo Nix played uh, maybe the best game we've seen him play. Easily on the road, it was the best we've seen him play. He had an 81% completion percentage yesterday, and that is his best road completion percentage ever. I don't think many people saw that coming when he got benched a few weeks ago, but see, that's the thing. And what needs to be talked about more with Bo Nix, so I'll talk about it right now, is he didn't fold. Some people are mental accordions, and as soon as something doesn't go their way, especially at a position like quarterback, they fold. They disappear. They're like Coach Klein. They go get a hot pretzel. Hashtag Waterboy. Bo Nix not only stayed ready, when he came back in, he leaned into it even more. He's gotten even more focused. He's even better now than he was before he got benched for TJ Finley. And so congratulations to Bo Nix, but also it's year one under Brian Harson. They are not running the ball down people's throats like you may think they are. They have a bad receiver room by SEC standards. They've already fired the receiver's coach this year. And yet when that happened, and you would expect all that inner turmoil to fester into a bad on-field product, they started winning. That's the hallmark of a good coach. I don't know how it's going to pan out long-term for Brian Harson at Auburn, but I'm telling you the year one returns are very encouraging. This is the kind of stuff you look for to validate that you hired the right guy. So if I'm Alan Green, I could not be happier with what I'm seeing right now. So big win yesterday, big win for Auburn. Moving on to Oklahoma, they beat TCU 52 to 31 and some validation here too of the way that we were thinking post-Texas. You cannot quantify what I'm about to say. The stat crowd hates what I'm about to say. The analytics crowd will not process what I'm about to say. But I was a believer and still am 
that there was a switch that was flipped in the Texas game for Oklahoma. Again, it is intangible in nature. It is non-quantifiable. There's no stat category for it. I just believe those things happen, and I believe we are seeing it with Oklahoma right now. And so this game was never in doubt yesterday. They go and beat TCU 52-31. Caleb Williams, no room to question the decision here eventually, uh, better late than never, from Lincoln Riley. He went 18 for 23, 295, four touchdowns. This is the starter for Oklahoma, and he will be the starter for Oklahoma. And uh, laughingly, some people thought that was still up in the air for debate up until kickoff yesterday, but it wasn't. The question about them, them being Oklahoma, the question about Oklahoma is not quarterback anymore. Questions about secondary, because they are badly banged up in the secondary. They're missing a ton of guys. That's why people can score on them right now. I'm not telling you it'll cease to happen once they get those guys back or if they do, but right now Oklahoma secondary is not a championship caliber product by any stretch. Fortunately, who do they play? They got, uh, they, go, they go to Kansas Saturday. So that's like going to the playground. And then they got Texas Tech, then a bye week. Hopefully, when they come out on the other side of that bye week, there are a few more blanks filled back in, or there are a few more of those crossed out names, uncrossed out in the secondary. What did I drop? Hopefully nothing important. So Oklahoma wins. And then on the flip side of this whole Red River deal, I think it's unfair scheduling, but it sounds like I'm complaining, so I won't, you know, I'll talk about it for a second. Uh, Texas lost 32-24 to to Oklahoma State. Look, I'm just not a fan of this. I'm not a fan of having the biggest rivalry game in your conference and then allowing a participant from that game to play a rested team the following week. I know no one feels sorry for either of these teams out in the Big 12. I know you guys don't, uh, but I do just a little bit even if they have all the advantage in the world over you. So I get it. I get why you don't really care about me saying that. But it was another week, and it was another double-digit lead wasted away for the University of Texas. 32-7, to I want to say, was the run Oklahoma had to close last week's game. Oklahoma State closed this game on a 19 to nothing run. Texas was up 17-3. to Full disclosure, I stopped paying attention a little bit when they were up 17-3. to And then they threw a pick six... And then things kind of changed. The whole tenor of the game kind of changed. They had four straight three and outs in the second half. And so the thing about Texas right now, you saw it last week. It's like, you know, it's like they have a sugar high out of the gate. It's happened a couple of times. And then all of a sudden they get out there and all of a sudden the wind's out of the sails, the sugar high's worn off, and now it's just up to you. And they ain't got it. Defensively, they run out of gas. Offensively, I don't know what in the world happens, but they lack consistency. They can't stay on that gas pedal for four quarters, or at least they haven't the last couple of weeks. I know that this should be about Oklahoma State. I get it. They're still undefeated. I don't know where they're ranked today. Collins, my AP guy. I don't even look at the AP. But I assume they're ranked high. They should be. They're undefeated. Um, they go to Iowa State Saturday, just to give you an idea of why we don't have them power rated high. They are nearly a touchdown underdog Saturday against two loss Iowa State. I have Iowa State rated above them. I will have Iowa State this week power rated above Oklahoma State. That doesn't mean anything. As long as you win your games, it doesn't mean anything. It's just Oklahoma State's a good, solid team that happens to be undefeated right now. I'm not hating on them. There is no, there is no natural proclivity to hate on a team from Stillwater, Oklahoma when you grow up in Harris County, Georgia. It's just not there, so I don't have any animus. I just I keep looking in the inbox, and I keep seeing people ask me why I'm not respecting Oklahoma State. I'm talking about them right now. It's not about respect. 
People who complain about and demand respect in life are some of the most tiresome people that you will ever run across. Have you ever noticed, think about this, I'm not talking about Oklahoma State anymore, just a general observation. Think about the most respected people that you know. And when's the last time you heard them ask for respect? There's correlation there. Uh, let's talk about a couple of teams here individually. Alabama yesterday. Actually, Colin, I want to intro it a different way. Here, we'll intro it here. How about Bama and Georgia yesterday? We'll start with Alabama. 49-9? to You wanted an answer? I know I did. I wanted an answer after Bama goes to... How little sense does this make, by the way, now? They go to College Station and they lose. And for all of you transitive property types out there, I want you to make sense of this one for me. So Mississippi State goes into College Station. They beat A&M. Bama goes in there and gets upset. And then Bama goes and just wood chippers Mississippi State. 49 to 9 yesterday. Padlock stat time. Got a couple of them, actually. But here's really the only one you need. If Alabama is ever 12 of 16 on third down against you, you will lose the football game. If, padlock stat number two, if you were minus three turnovers against Alabama, you will lose the football game. Both of these were the case for uh, Mississippi State yesterday. This was about as emphatic an answer as we could have ever asked for. There was a lot of talk around the Bama program this week. After they go to Texas A&M and they lose, of course, Nick Saban is barely off the field yet before he starts talking about how are you going to harness it? How are you going to respond? They responded. Will Anderson, by the way, see, he ran his mouth a lot this week in a good way, but the reason Will Anderson can run his mouth is because with an entire quarter of ball to play last night, Will Anderson had already harassed Will Rogers to the tune of four sacks and probably could have just kept going and going and going and going. There's a lot of Energizer Bunny vibe, among other vibes, with Will Anderson. So he had four sacks. Treshawn Holden was a name that popped up yesterday three times, I think 70 yards receiving. You need to keep an eye on him because we keep asking about that Bama receiving core. Are we going to have a couple of more candidates emerge? John Mechie had a good day yesterday. Uh, Jamison Williams is who he is. But Treshawn Holden's a guy. Not, not, not one of the names that maybe you expected, but Treshawn Holden. You've heard his name before. He's, he's appeared. He's been sprinkled in the old Bama box score a time or two. But he popped up yesterday. But Nick Saban... I'll tell you the most entertaining part of this that you probably didn't see. They're up 14 to 3, and Saban went into Xbox mode. He went into let the fans call the game mode, as close as you'll ever see him go. Because everybody around Bama has been irate all week that they go full spread formation, throw the ball three times inside the five-yard line first and goal, and they don't get it done. Actually, throw a pick last week with Brian Robinson ready, willing, and able to carry the mail into the end zone, and Evan Neal. It's like seven, four, five hundred pounds over left tackle. And so yesterday, I kid you not, you need to go back and watch it if you haven't already. There they are. And the situation, I think it was third and goal. They were on the one and they go empty backfield. And so Nick Saban, as he sometimes is not one to do, actually uses one of his timeouts. He has a whole collection of them in the locker room. Nick Saban loves to take timeouts in the locker room. And that will conclude my criticism of Nick Saban. Well, Saban burns a timeout. And then he burned Bill O'Brien as well as the timeout. Because when they came back out, I think they drove a couple of dump trucks out there and went as heavy as they possibly could. And they put Robbie Oots over there at fullback. And it was no mystery. In fact, they could have yelled the play across the line of scrimmage. And Mississippi State could have done nothing to stop it. Because when you have a guy like Evan Neal and you have a guy like Brian Robinson, there are simple laws of nature that you cannot counter. And if you run behind them, you will score. 
It's really that basic. Sometimes it doesn't have to be coaches, clinic, chalk talk, all kinds of different motions and pre-snap shifts. Sometimes you can just go full on caveman on people, and Alabama did. Nick Saban was asked about it in post game yesterday, and he came as close to saying, yeah, I basically dropped the elbow on Bill O'Brien and called my own offensive play, as you'll ever hear him come. And so that was Alabama's game. Georgia beat Kentucky 30-13. to I got a padlock stat for you here, too. If you are Kentucky and you amass a total of 64 yards rushing against Georgia, you will lose the football game. And that's what happened yesterday. Padlock stat, that wasn't really a stat at all, but I thought the biggest overlooked portion of this game and play in this game was when the ball was on the ground. And this was still a game at this point. Georgia put the ball on the ground, and Kendall Milton, as everyone else is looking around waiting for the next play to happen, realizes it's a fumble, or just realizes I better get on it in case it's a fumble, and it was, it was a live ball. And he hops on that thing, Georgia retains possession, gets eight yards out of it, by the way, I think. Next play, they score. Ball game. For all intents and purposes, ball game. You never know what that's worth. You never know. I can guarantee you Kendall Milton, I don't know whatever they hand out there, a belt, a chalice, I don't know. I guarantee he's got his hands on it tonight because that was a big time play in that game. They, Georgia has a notebook page full of guys out right now. I'm going to tell you what didn't go right for him yesterday to put into context how impressive this win was. They got a whole notebook page full of guys out. Uh, they were not particularly great offensively or defensively on third down yesterday. They had some penalties and they won. And they won even with Mark Stoops going full ramen noodle express play calling and decision making final minute of the game, which I respect. I always think you should coach to cover. Coach to cover. Winners win, but champions cover. And Mark Stoops covered yesterday for everybody. These two teams right now, Georgia and Alabama, are being talked about in a different way than they were a couple of weeks ago. A couple of weeks ago, remember, it was it's these two teams and then it's everybody else. Now a lot of people are saying it's Georgia and then it's everyone else. Uh, no, it's not. No, and there's not a wide gap between these teams either. I know that for rankings purposes, you have to make it that way because one is undefeated and one is not. I get that. I don't have a problem with that. I don't live in that world. I'm telling you there's no gap between these teams. There wasn't before. And even with Bama losing, there's not now. There's probably, according to us, like if I were to put a line on the game, you got Georgia by one, Georgia by two. This is under a field goal line. Regardless of where you play it, neutral side, of course, it's under a field goal line. And that's not going to change unless you have Bryce Young out injured. Uh, there is no gap between these teams. Uh, record notwithstanding, there's no gap between these teams right now. So you've got probably a collision course that's setting itself up in Atlanta, Georgia in December. We don't have to talk about it every day. It'll come. No matter how impatient you are, don't worry, it'll come. Looking forward to it, though. Uh, I have not mentioned where the Renaissance Tour is headed tonight. And that's because I'm not ready to yet. There are some things in motion behind the scenes. And I've got to make sure we got our ducks in a row. So on Tuesday, or maybe before, but at the latest on Tuesday, I'll let you know where the Renaissance Tour is headed. We had a great time at Tennessee yesterday. Great time. I took more pictures than I can ever remember taking. I don't think I took that many pictures in elementary school. Took so many of them yesterday. And we got treated great. I mean, got treated great at Tennessee. The entire administration there, great to us yesterday. Uh, best bet before we head out of here. Look, I'm not happy yesterday. And it, when you lose bets, that's one thing. But when we do our post bet win expectancy, and I look and, and know that we should have gone five and two, like sometimes you win a bet and you're not supposed to win it. This is how we do the post grading. Well, our post grading yesterday indicated we're five and two. 
But we ended up, what were we, three and four, two and five? We had a bad sub 500 day yesterday we had no business having. You can't forecast defensive points and turnovers. You can't forecast them. But man, like, like that Indiana game, that will, that will send you because you nail the game and you still lose. Rough. Having said that, it's not like we're going to hit the brakes on this, uh, but we will, we will surge. We will have to surge here in the second half. We got one best bet to start off week eight, and it is Notre Dame laying six and a half at home against Southern Cal. I gave some thought to heading to South Bend for the Renaissance Tour. I'm not going to do it, so there's one clue, uh, but I will reveal on Tuesday night where we're headed. But our first best bet of the week is USC at Notre Dame. We're going to lay six and a half with the Irish and then hope the line doesn't drop to like four. That's what we're going to hope. We like that number all the way up to a touchdown, though. Okay, I got to go watch the Braves because they need me right now. They were already down when we came on air, so they need me. Remember, we've got a full week. Remember to subscribe to the Late Kick Podcast if you haven't already. we got exclusive pods Tuesday morning and Thursday morning. You can only find them there. You can also find this show there and every show we do there. But you can find two exclusive podcasts. So the five-star reviews are appreciated. And thank you so much for subscribing here. Make sure you do it. All these things are free. And if we keep doing them, we can keep the entire show free forever and ever and ever. So for Director Colin, for our entire crew in Fort Lauderdale, we got out of here in an hour. They said it was impossible. They said it couldn't be done, but we did it. I'm Josh Pate. Thanks for watching. Take care. Have yourselves a great start to the week. And God bless.